and welcome to the Sunny 16 podcast for another week of film photography based goodness. This is show number 255. Thank you very much for the hand signals, James, on Switch. Don't forget. Um, <laughs> thank you for that one also. Oh, the joy of video listeners. It's a shame you can't see all of this. It isn't a shame. It's great. Um, <laughs> so I suppose I'd better introduce with me my two fabulous co hosts this evening. Uh, John, how are you? I'm great. Thank you very much, Graham. It's a pleasure to be back. It's been a few weeks, hasn't it? Mm. You've been a busy boy. How did the exhibition go? It went really well. I'm exhausted from it. Um, lots because like, we actually kind of had people invigilating the exhibition every day. So I was just exhausted by the end of it all. But it's, it's great to actually talk to people, you know, rather than it just sitting there and everyone wandering around. But yeah, it was good. And good yeah. response to the work? Yeah, yeah, everyone was uh, highly entertained by what we'd done, which was, we had one person, that when she left, she said, I was I had such a great time today, and I actually smiled, which I don't normally do when I go to exhibitions. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll take that as a win. <laughs> Absolutely, that's fantastic. Also here this evening, the wonderful Claire. Claire, how are you? I'm good, thank you, and it's always a pleasure to be here. Um I've been busy because um, I'm going to Barcelona, aren't I, a week on Thursday? Oh, of course, yes. Yeah. So I've been really busy kind of finalising the exhibition that I've worked on with uh, the Norwegian artist Gisler. Um, so that's been nice, but stressful now it's coming right up to the up to the wire as john will know <laughs> um yeah so that's nice but i'm also um because i'm going to be in barcelona for um is it nine days ten days um hopefully if i get there if the covid situation doesn't suddenly deteriorate deteriorate um yeah so i've been i'm also hoping to take make some new work while i'm out there so i've been kind of like looking into locations and you know sourcing what i need and yeah the fun bit that's great so fingers crossed yeah. i'm sure there are a lot of people out there who are very jealous to hear that you're heading off to warmer yeah. climbs um but that's really awesome and are you we're still hoping claire you're going to do some fantastic mm. uh, recording for us mm. whilst you're out there uh, get yeah. some great interviews yeah the look on your face john indicates that you haven't posted the, <laughs> the recording device <laughs> still, to claire still sitting beside me yeah. <laughs> but i'm sure he definitely will get around to you but that's really awesome and when is mm. it you said next week you're off claire Yes. So if if it all goes to plan, I'll be flying next Thursday. Um, so I have to be there to install, you know, put up the exhibition. Um, and then I'll have like a, a weekend of making my own work. Um, and then the exhibition, the openings on the Tuesday and then the, the, the then the rest of the festival. Yeah. Before I come home. So it should be nice. Wonderful stuff. That's great. Absolutely fantastic. Well, as well as these two lovely people, we have a fantastic guest with mm -hmm. us this evening. It is an utter delight to welcome to the podcast Ben Felton. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, great to be here. It's great to have you here. Um, now, I think I, it's been, we've been waiting to do this for a little while now because you have been out in Hong Kong uh, up until, well, this weekend, I think. Um, and the time differences between us and anywhere in Asia make recording really difficult. Um, so, But you've quite conveniently come home to France now, which we very appreciate you doing that, I assume, just so you could be on the podcast. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, my wife, you know, I have been invited on the best photography podcast in the world to go back home. Uh, and she said yes, because she's great. Oh. Um, there's so much stuff that 
we were, I mean, before we even started recording, as is so often the case, we end up going down so many conversational <laughs> paths, and there's so much stuff that I want to talk to you about, we all want to talk to you about this evening, um, because for one thing, just from a gear point of view, you have so much interesting gear that you've had so many interesting experiences over, over the year, I think we need to get into some of that. Um, and primarily, there's a really cool project that you've been working on for well, the last little while now, which we absolutely need to get into because that's awesome. Um, but let's start at the beginning. And I know it's a very packed question, but what's been your journey into photography up until this point? What's got you to where you are now? So step one was, I mean, obviously in the 90s and like late 80s, 90s and up until uh, 2008 or something like that, I was you know, casually shooting photographies, family stuff, souvenirs, nothing to write home about. Obviously, it was film at the beginning, and then it, it shifted to digital when digital became affordable. Um, and then in 2009, I subtly hinted to my wife that I'd like to get more serious about photography. So she um, took the hint and <laughs> got me a, 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 you know, decent digital camera. And one of the driving forces behind that was concert photography. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a massive jazz fan and there's plenty of jazz clubs in Paris. Um, and because it's a music where there's such interplay between the musicians, I was constantly seeing these, um, you know, kind of glances or, or mo like movements together. There's, there's a togetherness on stage that I found really fascinating. Um, and um, I just didn't realize how hard it was to do like concert photography in general, but concert photography in dimly lit jazz mm -hmm. clubs in particular. <laughs> so I actually very quickly like invested in fixed lenses and you know wide aperture lenses, etc. Um, and that was my main focus for a while. Um, and then I uh, I heard that there was a photography club in the in the French town that I was living in. Um, but it turned out to be a printing club. So I had to get into film, not because I suddenly <laughs> thought, oh, awesome, I want to get into film, but because I needed negatives to learn how to print. <laughs> um, so it was a very bizarre way of getting in there. I, I, I ordered a, a Spotmatic F on eBay for, you know, like 20 quid or something, um, and a couple of lenses, actually really good lenses, um, mm. and dirt cheap. And that's what got me started in film. Um, and until probably around 2015, 2016, I was shooting, say, you know, 80% digital and maybe 20% film. Um, and then it kind of flipped over in the course of like a year. Um, in large part because of this project that we're going to talk about, but mm -hmm. also because I realized, I think at some point, that um, that I had more intent when I was shooting film, basically. Were you, um, were you photographing the jazz clubs on film? Not in Hong Kong, because unfortunately the music scene in Hong Kong is, is virtually non-existent. Um, so I haven't I haven't shot a concert in ages, and to be honest, I would probably still pick digital mm -hmm. um, to shoot concerts because it is so tricky, even with digital. Um, I've I've tried I've tried a couple of rolls of film over the years, 
Um, but I never really got any any decent. There's one photo I really like, which is film, but you know, it's it's just it's just yeah, it's so hard. I my degree of admiration for the great jazz photographers like Guy Le Carrick and these guys is just I do not know how they did this. With especially you look at I, I recently bought a book of uh, photographies of Billie Holiday. Um, and there's some live shots there from the fifties. So you're like, okay, you know, knowing the cameras that these, these guys had and the, the film sensitivity that they had just insane. How did they do it? I just, I just don't know. It's just, I think they just had more powerful lights in the clubs back in those days. Yeah, possibly. But I, I also think, you know, just like a lot of other early photographers, you know, they just, made do with what they had and they just got better at working mm-hmm. around the constraints. Um, so yeah, sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure I could do some good stuff in clubs with film, but I'd have to, I'd have to sweat a lot to get there. <laughs> uh, particularly, um, I guess when, when the thing that you're really looking to capture is those, those minute gestures that interplay between the different people, if the the window for that is microscopic at best anyway and if you miss it or even if you can't capture it sharply then you've lost everything with that really haven't you well uh, yeah and i mean in fairness most of my images ended up being you know portrait like anyway mm-hmm. uh, because that's so hard but actually you're right the hardest part is you have to shoot super shallow because otherwise you don't have enough light but then one of your subjects is inevitably not sharp anyway um although you know you end up making a few interesting compromises um i I called it embracing the shadows Mm. at one point which is okay forget about trying to get everything exposed properly just focus on that bit of the face or the hands or whatever that you really want and forget the rest Mm -hmm. um and and of course yeah the other one is you know sharpness is relative so Mm live with blurry if if it gives you a good composition anyway but yeah well you know uh, what they say about jazz photography it's the tones you don't capture that really matter (laughs) yeah yeah i mean (laughs) it's 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 super tricky i still love it but i just don't get the opportunity to do concerts anymore and obviously they haven't even if i'd been here i I wouldn't have shot concerts in the last (laughs) eight minutes anyway um but uh yeah so um then you know after after that i started doing street photography in paris and obviously moving to asia there's plenty of opportunities there mm-hmm. and in uh, 2015 uh, or late 2014 i saw a video digital rev video that showed the expand in action uh and i was like oh man this is awesome <laughs> so in shanghai there's a there's a mall dedicated to photography it's like eight there's three buildings, eight levels each, and it's only photography stores. Um, now, it, it's in the broadest sense of photography. So you have like backdrop stores and, mm-hmm. and tripod stores, and you know that each of them is super specialized. And obviously, there's a few secondhand film uh, photography stores in there. Um, so I, I found an expand for the considerable sum at the time of about fifteen hundred dollars, I think. Um, which is, of course, a, a, a third or a quarter of what it costs now. Um, 
and um, and so I, I I decided to get one, and I I did quite a lot in Shanghai. I actually released a zine last year with um, the best color shots that I did in in Shanghai. Mm. Um, and uh, I mean, it's 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 been a really interesting process because it forces you to look at things differently because it's so wide. I mean, I remember my early roles and like, you would constantly go, Oh no, I didn't realize this was in the frame or, or, you know, this thing where you're shooting straight lines, but even at minute, like uh, discrepancy in, in level actually like is glaring on that camera because mm. it's so wide yeah. that that you know it's very obvious that your curb is not straight parallel to the edge etc um and you know you can you can go dutch angle on a, a, a you know three two aspect ratio quite easily on a on a 65 24 you cannot <laughs> it just What's does not um, work. i've never actually held an x-band what's what's the viewfinder like you actually see the frame correctly through it Yes. Yeah. So you have uh, frame lines. Um, so for the two standard lenses, the 45 and the 90, there's a third lens, which is a 30, but then you need an external viewfinder. And that lens is more expensive than the camera. So I don't own that. Um, but for the 45 and the 90, um, the frame lines actually adjust the lens mm -hmm. that you've got in there. Now, when you're shooting with the 90, uh, in all fairness, you you really are looking at a tiny set of frame lines in the middle of the frame um, of the viewfinder. But it's no, no, it's 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 quite well made. The, the camera is quite well made. Uh, I mean, the glass is is fantastic, um, and it's a very modern camera. I mean, it's you know, it's it's the the GW that I bought last year. That's fully manual. Um, you know, this has, apart from autofocus, because it's a rangefinder, this has everything. Okay. Um, so you were doing, so street photography in, in Hong Kong, where you have been living for the last several years, and street photography was unsurprisingly what you were engaging with, with the XPAM. Um, but as you've mentioned, the the thing that you've been doing or, or focusing on lately is really markedly different from that. Um, and... Uh, well, I, I, first off, you can explain what it is, but also how you went from street photography on an X-Pan to even starting to experiment with this, because it is such a combination of delightfully experimental yeah. techniques. So what is what is the project you've been working on lately? All right. So like anyone who's been doing film, you do accidental double exposures. And I've always had something of a fascination for that while at the same time recognizing that every single one I did was crap. <laughs> um, you know, this kind of thing at the back of your brain that says, this could be interesting, but it isn't. Um, I, you know, participated in a few, like, exchange, role exchange things where you shoot mm -hmm. over someone else's role. And, yeah, none of it ever really satisfied me. And, and I realized that, probably the reason that I didn't like the end result was that it was, there was never any intent. It, it was, it was always this accidental thing and, and for accidental to be striking and really, you know, 
amazing. It, it requires an amount of luck that's just, it, I'm sure it happens, but it's, it's just very, very unlikely. Um, so that was kind of at the back of my brain ever since I started film. Um, and then what, uh, what happened was, and, and, you know, sorry, just to, to like go on a, on a side path just for a second. Um, I've done quite a few interviews with the exhibition on this project. The project's called photosynthesis. Maybe it's mm. a good time to name it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you realize that like, art journalists kind of expect you to describe this as a fully baked project from the inception, you know, like, Oh yeah. I instantly knew exactly what I wanted to do, but I don't know, maybe for some people that's how it happens, but it's certainly not how it happened for me. So I had this idea at the back of my mind and, um, I wanted to try, um, uh, experimenting with it, but, I realized that there was one massive hurdle, um, which was frame alignment. Um, so obviously, if you're gonna if you're gonna shoot an entire roll um, and then rewind your film and shoot it again, having your frames aligned perfectly is virtually impossible mm -hmm. with most cameras. And that's where, ironically, the expand came into play, because. Because the X-Ban allows you to shoot both panoramic and normal two-third aspect ratios, um, they decided to wind the entire film inside the camera as soon as you put the film in so that the camera can always tell you how many shots you have, even if you toggle the two different aspect ratios. So if you, if you go to panoramic, it'll say you have 16 shots left. And if you go to two thirds, it'll say you have 31 shots left, for example. So you can actually change it mid roll. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You can. I mean, my lab hates that because then they can't scan <laughs> it automatically, but, but you can. Um, and um, so I had an epiphany probably late 2017 or something like that, that that would probably make your roll start from the exact same place each time and therefore ensure frame alignment. So I shot, I went out and I shot a roll of, of leaves and plants and, you know, whatever I could see. Um, and then I got my kids to stand in front of a, of a background and, and shot them with flash. And the images were atrocious for a variety of reasons. Um, one of them being that for some insane reason, I, I shot color slide film. <laughs> um, but, um, the extra challenge yeah no i don't know I, i'm not sure it was really intentional it was like i grabbed whatever was there um but anyway um it proved the point that frames were aligned mm -hmm. um so then what happened was uh and you know it's it's those those little things in life like uh every summer uh a, a large group of friends uh we used to gather in an old country house and like for a few days, just um, have fun, play games, whatever. And um, and I was like the official, unofficial photographer of, of the event. Um, and um, one year I heard back from some people that 
some people felt forced to pose and they didn't like it. And that was clearly not my intent. So the next year, 2019, I actually shot two rolls of textures before going there in Hong Kong. And I just asked a few people, you know, we, we like guys in this instance. Yeah, because, sorry, taking a step back for a second. One of the uh, important findings from that very first role was that, and this is going to sound stupid, but was that clothes have textures as well. And so the idea of superimposing the texture and the human figure quite clearly the clothes were getting in the way. It didn't work. Mm -hmm. So I asked a few male friends to, if they were okay to basically take their shirts off and, and I put a white drape out sunlight, you know, no, no light control whatsoever. And I just shot my two rolls. Um, and a lot of the images that came out were awesome. I mean, they were way beyond anything I expected in terms of how cool they looked. The models liked them as well. Um, and so what happened then it kind of precipitated cause I, um, I shared a few of those online and a friend of mine who lives in Brussels sent me a message and she said, I want to pose for this. And so very quickly I had this, uh, you realize this is nude or at least partially nude because otherwise it doesn't work with the textures, et cetera. I'd never set out to shoot nudes. Mm -hmm. I'd set out to combine human figures and textures. But, you know, I, it, it was effectively nude shooting, even though that was not me, my initial kind of, um, you know, intent. And um, she said, yeah, I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. So then I had to have a... <laughs> Long conversation with my wife, who was not quite so comfortable at first. Um, but in the end, she said, yeah, of course, go and do it. And um, and that's what kind of started the project proper from that point on. Mm -hmm. And uh, interestingly, yeah, the models has been mostly word of mouth. So mm -hmm. usually um, the models like their images a lot. They share them and other people see the images. They want to do it as well. So it's been a lot easier than I initially anticipated to actually find models. Was portrait photography something that you had engaged with much before this point? Because obviously, like, the double exposure is a key part of it, but also the fact that these have to be well-executed portraits in yeah. themselves. They have to be, you know, the, the posing, that everything about them needs to be good to carry it all off. Um, you, you're not... Although the double exposures make the pictures the unique things that they are, but it's not like you're using that technique to hide flaws in the pictures otherwise. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yes, I had, uh, and again, a combination of, of you know, lucky breaks. Uh, one of them being, uh, there, was a, there was a photo walk group here in Paris, and uh, one guy in the group had studio lights and didn't use them, and he wanted to sell them, and he sold them off really cheap, so I bought them off him. Um, so I started playing around with them a little bit. And then the other one was, so one of my other many hobbies is uh, role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. Um, and there was a game author in the US who followed my photography work and uh, he published a game in 2015 called Unknown Armies, 
which is a kind of contemporary horror game inspired by Clive Barker and stuff like that. <laughs> and he got in touch and he said, um, I want the whole game to be illustrated only with photographies. Would you be interested? Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I you know, read the kind of early versions of the game just to find inspiration. And then I got a few friends rented a studio for an afternoon and just took some images and did a bit of digital manipulation and stuff like that to make them more, more horrific. And, um, and, uh, yeah, and I was actually quite pleased with the results. And, um, I think, I think a lot of people are, are more intimidated by, by studio than, than they would need to be. I find it actually a lot easier, at least to get something decent. Um, now with this project, I'm experimenting with some really weird lighting setups and stuff like that, where it gets really tricky and you have to think about, you know, cast shadows and all all that kind of stuff. But you know, just to get a nice black background, one light portrait is actually quite easy, and and you can very quickly get really good results. Um, in parallel to that, <laughs> this is, this is, I'm taking you guys into a whole load of weird <laughs> stuff, but, um, some people, I'm not part of them, but obviously because I, I know a lot of role players, there's an intersection with that. Uh, a lot of people do live action role playing games. And a lot of these people love to sew their own costumes and, and, you know, get really into it. Um, and so these were my initial models. Hmm. Um, and, um, that, yeah, that led to, uh, doing more kind of either studio or, or some outdoor shoots as well. Uh, I have a whole series of kind of weird 1930s where everybody is, um, you know, costumed, uh, for that era. Um, but then I, I played, I did a lot of digital kind of cloning and stuff like that. So you have multiple, um, same characters in the, in the frame and, and, you know, weird and creepy stuff like that. Um, so that's how I kind of got my education into, into, you know, portraiture. So the the portrait work you'd done up until that point, then the the people you'd been shooting had, for the most part, um, been playing a role. They'd been they'd not, you know, through the the, fa- the fancy work for the um, role playing game and the people doing the live action role playing stuff. They were people there who were kind of in a character. So I guess that's quite because the people then for the photosynthesis they know that when their pictures come out, it's also not going to be them just as they are i would imagine that's quite freeing for people as models to, to be out of their own heads thinking this is just this is just me as i am do you think there is a connection with that i think so to a certain extent i think it's less intimidating for a model knowing that the image is not going to be you know kind of very frontally nude because the texture is in a way draping them with something um Obviously, I, so one of the things that I decided very early on was that I wanted the models to have full control over which images I could use because I'm not paying the models. Um, 
I realize it's quite an intimate decision to, you know, kind of strip down in front of the camera. So I want them to not feel pressured into sharing images that they wouldn't be comfortable with. Um, what I've noticed over time um, is that apparently, and I'm, I'm not sure I know exactly how I'm doing it, but apparently I'm quite good at setting a very relaxed atmosphere during the shoot. So I've had quite a few models who were doing this for the first time, you know, afterwards say, hey, this was a really cool moment, which was not something I expected initially mm -hmm. when I started doing this. Um, and yeah, the, the, the most kind of gratifying thing from that point of view for me is that I've not had a model yet say I hate the images. Um, so, you know, it, it brings, I've realized that what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to focus on what I think is the most interesting features in each model's looks. Um, and I don't know if enhance is the word because that would imply that it needs enhancing, which is not necessarily the case. <clears throat> uh, but, you know, kind of, um, yeah, blend the textures in a way that's going to make it look even more interesting in a sense. Mm -hmm. Are you, um, are you choosing the textures based on the model? No. Like um, I will probably at, at least for some part of the work in the future for a very simple reason, which is that I'm that that's the fall project is, uh, doing the same thing in four by five. So then I'll be literally thinking picture by picture, which I'm not doing right now. So my process right now is I go out, I shoot a full roll of textures um, or more, and then I do a studio session and I do the portraits. What I jot down is the general nature of the texture. Um, so, I mean, I've got my own codes now, <laughs> uh, just to kind of know where I'm at. Um, so I have what I call non-directional textures, which are basically leaves that are not particularly vertical or horizontal or, or just, just go in every direction. Uh, I have directional textures. I have uh, branches because you have to expose them a little bit differently if, if you want them to come out right. I have what I call inverted treetops, where I basically um, I shoot the tops of trees, but I flip them over in camera. So I shoot them upside down mm -hmm. so that the top of the tree is at the bottom of the figure when I'm shooting the portrait. And the combination of the white background that I'm shooting in the studio and the white of the sky means that the bottom of the figure is entirely burned out of the image. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it tapers out the figure at the bottom. Um, so there's a few more, but essentially I've kind of codified the different styles of textures that I can shoot so that I know roughly um, if I need to shoot vertically or not, what kind of lighting I might need. But I don't write down exactly what the texture is, and I don't know exactly what's where in the image. Um, but there's still an element of look 
I call it chaos, and and it's exactly that. And you you're absolutely right. And I think that so that's why I want to try and be very like more precise with four by five. Um, but I don't think I will entirely drop the idea of not knowing exactly because mm -hmm. there's been so many happy accidents that have actually led me to insights as to other things I could do based on, you know, things I could not have anticipated. Yeah. Um, there are some images, like, for example, um, when I shoot palm leaves, um, which is a very, like, there's a very strong, the stem is very visible, it's very strong, so I tend to shoot them central, and then I tend to ask the model to, like, stand quite tall and straight, and align the back with the stem of the of the palm because I know it it works. I know it's it's going to work. Um, but but these are few and far between. For the most part, I have a rough sense of what kind of texture I have, but nothing more precise than that. What I try to do is, and this you know comes from experience, is um, there are a few textures that now I know tend to eat up the entire image if. I'm not careful exposing them. So mm -hmm. there are a few textures that I will underexpose even more when I'm shooting the texture, just so that they're not so strong and powerful over the portrait. Um, and uh, how are you? How are you doing your exposures? You so, I mean, general rule is is minus one for the textures and straight for the portraits. But there's variations around that. If I want to do a backlit portrait, then I'll underexpose the portrait, and I know there's going to be more texture. Um, it also depends on the skin tones of my model. Um, I recently um, shot uh, a, a black girl, um, and I was I was more careful on that shoot than I've ever been with exposures because I knew that you know, the way double exposure works, I knew that there would be so much more texture than for lighter skin tones. Um, and I got some awesome results, really great photos that I love. Um, but I know it's a lot trickier because if you're not careful, the texture is the only thing that, that comes through. Uh, there are a few setups where I shoot the texture normal, normally, not, not underexposed. And then there's a few textures, as I said, where I know I need to, uh, I need to underexpose them a bit more. So I tend to go minus one five or, or one even minus two, um, so that they're not overpowering when I shoot the portrait. Basically, do you tend to work? Um, I know you said you uh, shoot with a generally speaking, just a plain white background, either hanging behind or I think sometimes you're actually lying the models. Yeah. Uh, and shooting down because you've got some really cool pictures. With the, you know, the advantage of doing that is that you can have the hair doing all sorts of amazing exactly. stuff. Yeah. Works fantastically. That's some amazing pictures. We should mention actually your website so people can actually go and see what we're talking about. Is um, uh, <laughs> actually what, what's your Instagram? Because you said point people towards your Instagram <laughs> at Ben Felton B E N B L T E N. So the thing I want to stress because your audience is. Uh, English or American for the most part, or, although I'm sure that it goes beyond, is my last name is F-E-L-T-E-N, not F-E-L-T-O-N. Um, so 
Ben Felton, B-E-N-F-E-L-T-E-N. That's my Instagram. Yeah, and there's a great, great selection of your work on there. Um, with the lighting, how much do you change that from shoot to shoot? Because you mentioned about the fact that you um, look at the models, look at the features they've got and decide what you want to highlight, what you want to accentuate. And I would imagine that by adjusting the placements of the light and therefore where shadow and light falls, you can pick more and more where the texture um, shows up and where it doesn't. But that also seems like a difficult thing to do. Is that something you muck around with a lot? Yeah. And again, uh, probably not as much as I should. Um, it's in part down to the way that the sessions themselves are organized. So I tend to have more than one model at a time, um, which kind of forces you, if you don't want the session to run into hours and hours, it, it forces you to kind of do some things a bit systematically. So there's an element of trying a certain lighting setup out with all the models, um, but adjusting it's more like adjusting the amount of light for like this model or that model specifically. So like typically um, like blonde hair, or dark hair are going to react completely differently to the texture. Um, so if I know, for example, if I have a model with blonde hair and I want some texture to come out, I have to side light so that one side of the hair is going to be in the shadows and it's going to have textures. Otherwise, if I light from the front, then there's going to be virtually no texture in the hair. Um, so it's a it's it's more a matter of adjusting the lighting to like specific features of the model. Um, I actually recently shot uh, an Australian model with really really pale skin, and and I know I'll have to do that again because uh, I messed up a number of shots because I just didn't anticipate how much light the skin would, would capture. Um, I can sympathize so, with that. I, I, I took some pictures of Rachel a couple of weeks ago, and I don't think Rachel's seen the sun in over a year. And um, she's basically made of highlights, like wherever the sun touched her skin, her ghost white skin, it was like a beacon going off. So I can sympathize with that. Yeah, so, I mean, it's 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 these things. And then I, I there's, there's some lighting setups that I've tried and I know work quite well. Um, but they're quite tricky as well. So, for example, one of the things that I do is to uh, light the subject from both sides but not from the front, um, which outlines the silhouette quite sharply but puts in a lot of texture. Like It's like the, the, the middle of the, of the frame is virtually backlit, so you're going to have a, real, a lot, lot of texture in the middle um, and less on the sides. But... I'm still working on, you know, exactly how much exposure, how much light I need on each side to, to make it perfect. Um, the other thing is, and this is the part where, you know, to John's point, I, I, I'm, I have some aspiration to be a bit more precise with 4x5 when I start doing that. And that is that basically some textures just, don't work with certain lighting setups as well. And so um, sometimes I waste shots just because it could never have worked, if, if you see what I mean. Um, so 
it's not the way I'm doing it right now is not very economical. I'm kind of trading off the opportunity of getting an unexpected fantastic image uh, for a lot of wasted shots, basically. Um, so still that double exposure trap to a certain extent. You mean you've you've done a lot to Brit to um, raise the chances of having good luck by being very controlled and very methodical in the way that you're doing it. But there is still that element of luck is still in there. It, it is, and and I don't want to eliminate it entirely because it, it's so enjoyable when you get the scans back and you go like, oh wow, I could never have done this if I'd wanted to. Like um, I, I shot an image recently where it was a very kind of branchy texture. It was, it was leaves. It was a green plant, but it was very branchy with small leaves. And it radiates from the eye. It's a side of the face, basically, uh, with the back of the head. So, you know, quite high. Um, and it, the texture radiates from the eye backwards. And it's like, I did not position it there. It just so happened that there was a branch like stemming from where I put the eye in the frame and, and then radiating back out. And it's just fantastic. Um, and yeah, could I do this deliberately? Yeah, of course I could, but it would require a much, much more controlled setup. And that's where the, the, the difference with doing it with four by five, I think is that I can then take an exact image of the shot that I'm taking on the four by five and have this in front of me when I'm taking the portrait, um, on a roll of 36, I could do it, but I, I would never, I would never have the patience to actually do that. <laughs> <laughs> I was interested to see that, um, you, you said that you started off using the XPAN because of the way that I worked, but that's not the camera that you use for the most part, is it? So for a long time it was, and it stressed me a lot because it's such an expensive camera. And I thought, I mean, at first I thought, what do I do if it breaks down? I, was like, I can't even continue the project. Um, and then, I don't know, one morning I, I posted on Twitter a message copying, you know, the usual suspects, Dan, uh, Emulsive, um, Hamish, and saying, you know, are there any other cameras that wind in the, the film entirely before like spooling it back out? And, uh, and they sent me a link to a list of those cameras, including the very cheap EOS 300, which I got for 30 quid in Hong Kong and has the same feature. And it turns out that I have Canon glass from my uh, previous uh, digital days. So I have some really good Canon lenses. Um, so now I'm doing it with a very cheap body that I know if it breaks down, I can find another one for 30 quid. Uh, so it's a lot more, it's a lot, you know, it's liberating. And of course, the other thing is I now have a, a choice of lenses that's much, much broader as well, because with the X-Pan, I was limited to 45 and, and 90, and that was it. Um, so I got a cheap macro camera, which has actually allowed me to do some really interesting things with the textures, because there are some some leaves that are really interesting, but they're really tiny. Um, so without a macro lens, you can't really use them as textures because you don't see the details at all. Uh, I've tried without much success so far to focus on like the actual texture of the leaf. So shoot inside the leaf with the macro lens. Um, I think the main reason it hasn't worked is that 
because the whole philosophy of the project is to try and show our proximity to nature or the fact that mm -hmm. we are like fully part of nature, um, I don't see myself cutting off leaves just to shoot them in better conditions. So I'm always shooting you know, on the plant. But when you're doing macro shooting on the plant with like even a tiny bit of wind, it's it's all going to be very messy. And so I haven't really found a good process yet to get like these super close shots of leaves to work. I'm, I'm going to say as a gardener, Ben, I'm going to say that most plants could probably cope with leaving losing a leaf or two. It probably wouldn't I'm, cause them any great harm. I'm sure they can, but it's just like conceptually it it. it it doesn't ring right to me. It's just, it's, know, it's, there, there's a man who's dedicated to his art. I like that. Uh, as a professional plant butcherer, um, I just say get on with it. Just tear them off, <laughs> chop them up. Well, maybe leaves. I'll come to your garden and then. I can <laughs> give you so many off. leaves, man. Leaves for days. Um, <laughs> Claire, actually, because the EOS 300, that's the camera that you've recommended. I was thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. For exactly the same reasons. Well, I like it. And it was one we put forward for John, wasn't it, on the, the show? Oh, to aid, sorry, yeah. Um, I don't need another camera. Last week. Um, <laughs> do, do any of us do? <laughs> um, but I was, uh, but I, I like it. I like it. And it's lightweight and it's got lots of different functions. And like you say, Ben, um, if you've got different lenses, then, you know, it's great. Yeah, no, I, and now, I and like now you that. know that you can really very easily do entire rolls of double exposures with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the interplay of scale that you've got because you're able to change lens and use a broad variety mm. of um, lenses really works well. I think that's fantastic. Definitely. I guess the temptation with a lot of multiple exposures is you're using the same lens camera combo, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. But you always get the same scale and the same view on things whereas you're getting details in some of them or grand kind of almost landscape views of of the trees um with it in the human frame which is it's really interesting that yeah and and you know one of the limitations it's one of the things i'm hoping to address this summer while i'm here one of the limitations is in hong kong it's very very hard to get any distance between you and the trees uh, because either you're in a park and you're in the middle of the trees, or you or you're in the jungle and you're in the middle of the trees, but you you've you've you haven't got these like tree hedges like you have in Europe, where you can be standing a hundred meters away from it and look at like a very light jagged edge at the top of the trees. Mm -hmm. That's not something I've been able to do because it, it just doesn't exist in in Hong Kong, or if it does, I haven't found it. Um, so I think even. Being here in Europe this summer, the geography is going to give me opportunities to mix things up a little bit and do something different. Um, and, and obviously, the other thing is that, I mean, as rich as Hong Kong is, is with plant life, and it really is, um, I do end up shooting more or less the same plants every time. Um, so I'm actually looking forward to doing something which I never would have imagined I would do ever which is that wherever I'm going to go this summer is find out if there's a local botanical garden and just go out there and check out the textures. Check um, out those sweet leaves. Yeah, exactly. No, but it's, 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 um, it, it's quite fascinating. I'm, 
I, I, I know how to recognize quite a lot of leaves now. Um, and I even know their scientific names just because I researched it for the project. Uh, and it's made me very aware of this textural element um, that I was glossing over previously. Um, you know, like some leaves are just fascinating. They've got these incredible contrasts and, and like, nearly etchings on the leaves themselves. Mm. And I'd never really paid attention to that before. Which, uh, which actually raises a, sorry, just as, an, as a, a very short aside, in the early days, I also tried color at the same time. Um, and I, I stopped because, not because I think it's got potential as well, but I realized that it, color wasn't so much about the textures and I, I couldn't focus on both the colors and the textures. So I think if I, started doing the color again, I'd have to think really very differently about what I'm shooting on the texture side or on the plant side um, for it to work. Yeah, so, well, and so what black and white film are you using at the moment? Sorry? What black and white film do you use? So for the most part, the project's been shot on FP4. Um, I did try a few other films here and there. Um, most recently also, uh, which wasn't such a good choice. Um, funnily enough, just a few days before, I'd watched a video uh, on YouTube about someone shooting also and saying, it's really weird that the clouds are never white. They're always like, you know, kind of milky um, gray and I can't get pure whites. And that's exactly what happened with my backgrounds. I couldn't get pure whites either, but that meant for me that I had textures in the background. Um, with also, um, which then required a lot of editing in Photoshop to get rid of it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it's mostly been FP4, and I guess with 4 by 5 I'll probably try HP5 just to get a, a higher ISO film um, because of lighting, because if I shoot 125 ISO on 4 by 5 I'm going to have to blind my models. So. <laughs> Um, so there's, an, there's another phase as well, isn't there, after you've photographed them? Is that right? You, oh, you, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, and again, that's, you know, I was talking about the fully baked thing at the beginning. Um, that came a little bit later, uh, which is the Cyanotype prints. Um, so when I, uh, when I started film photography all the way back in, like, early 2010s um, I went to see a friend in Dublin uh, and I met a photographer there and I, I basically took a uh, I mean she she offered to teach me how to do cyanotype prints um, which I did now and I loved it but for some reason I never did it again uh, until last summer summer 2020 uh, we weren't coming back in Europe for obvious reasons. I had a lot of time on my hands. Um, so I, I ordered a Cyanotype kit and mm -hmm. I started doing Cyanotype prints again. And I, initially I printed, you know, a dozen digital negatives of very different images, including a few of the photosynthesis project. And when I saw the Cyanotypes, I was like, man, this is just, this is the output that I want for this. Mm. Um, and I, I, I like the black and white images a lot, but I think the cyanotype brings in something like 
ethereal or, or otherworldly to the whole thing that I, I really love. And also it's, it's fascinating because I mean, cyanotype printing started with plant textures. Um, the very early cyanotypes were, you know, um, photograms of, of algae and, and leaves. And so there's kind of a connection and actually there's a wonderful, uh, moment that happened because of that. Um, I got contacted, uh, so the, the lady who used to do these cyanotype uh, photograms in the 1840s was called Anna Atkins. Um, and, uh, I got contacted by a guy called Sam Atkins and he said, I love your images. Um, you know, Anna Atkins is part of our family history. And, uh, when, when I saw them, I showed them to my mom and my grandmother and everybody, you know, found them wonderful. And I was like, mm. wow, this is, you know, surreal. It's like, you know, what's going on. And, um, he asked me if I'd seen, the Anna Atkins prints. And I'd at that stage, I'd only seen them online because I tried to buy a book and it was, it was stupidly expensive and I just couldn't afford it. And he said, Oh, you know what? I think I have a few books left of the 1980 print. Um, I can send you one. So he sent me a book of Anna Atkins prints and it's just, it was just unbelievable. So um, actually, when I go home, I, I need to print a few for him to thank mm -hmm. him. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of synchronicity in this project. There's a lot of things that I didn't necessarily anticipate from the start, but just made so much sense, mm -hmm. um, you know, in actually doing it. And linotype printing was definitely one of them. I'm looking actually at this image here, if I may say, one of your cyanotype ones. It's called Tree Emergence. Uh -huh. And it is. It's for listeners. If you go on the website, you'll see it. it's, a, it's a beautiful image. Um, and ha has she been – have you – has she been um, lit from the side? I'm taking it she has. The, the model's called N. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if that's Naomi or exactly what image you, you're talking about. Um, so this was one of the early shoots. Gorgeous image. I suspect there were lights on both sides, but probably like a two, two to one ratio of light. Mm. Um, and yeah, that was, that was definitely a happy accident. I, I, because if you look closely, you see that the tree is sideways, um, which kind of makes no sense from a mm. from a kind of conceptual point of view. Uh, but it, it worked so well that it made me realize that I didn't necessarily need to um, to have the the same perfect alignment yeah. and the and the um, and the other thing is that. Um, so this one's actually been very tricky to print with cyanotype because the paper that I use, so with cyanotype, your choice of watercolor paper has a huge impact on, on the look of the image. And you know, when you're doing darkroom printing, obviously your choice of paper has some impact on the image yeah. for sure. But th these differences here are way, way more radical than they are with, with darkroom uh, photo paper. Um, and the paper that I was using uh, is very contrasty because I wanted those white backgrounds. I wanted the white yeah. to be white. Um, but 
I realized that when I have some really subtle shades in the initial black and white image, they get wiped out as well. Uh, so all of my early attempts at doing this one with the paper I was using for the rest of the project, um, I just had the entire head cut out by the tree shape because um, the the light gray that I have in the black and white image was actually completely mm. white. Um, and so I actually printed that one on a uh, different paper um, that does not give me pure white. So the backgrounds are light blue. Yeah. But I get a lot more detail out of that paper. So that's been a, a really interesting journey as well is discovering what works or, or rather what's fit for purpose for cyanotype. And there's some projects that I have in mind for like future projects where I know I won't be using the same paper because it's actually too contrasty for the kind of image mm. that I would be trying to produce. How are you going from your black and white image to the cyanotype? Are you making a neg an internegative? So I'm not making an internegative because I have no idea how to do that and also because I don't have a dark room. Um, but I'm printing a digital negative on uh, acetate, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that's another rabbit hole that I've only very shallowly dug so far. Uh, there's a huge amount of, uh, processing that you can do on your negative before you print it to ensure like maximum detail, et cetera. Um, but actually, strangely, things went so fast from, producing the first cyanotypes to actually getting an exhibition uh, going in Hong Kong that I, I, I was like virtually very early on, I was focused on actually producing images for the exhibition. So I, I wasn't experimenting anymore. I was just trying to get consistent results. Yeah. <laughs> With the, uh, um, you mentioned the, you know, the exhibition is called, oh, the, the, the work is called photosynthesis, which is a great name. Um, and the you're drawing on the idea of the connection between people and nature and perhaps with that connection has been broken um right at the beginning of this you said that this didn't start as a fully formed idea and and i always it's one of those things that i always enjoy about things when when bodies of work come together and the um i suppose almost the artist statement that that part of it uh, at what part did that start to come into your head at what part in this photographic journey did you start to feel like okay actually this is what i'm expressing was it something that from fairly early on you knew this is what i want to do or was it as you started looking at the work you sort of thought okay this is what actually i'm getting or is it something that when somebody said we're doing an exhibition you need to give a reason for these photographs <laughs> quick think of one yeah no so it was somewhere in between those those two so Initially, I was approaching this more from a kind of technical point of view in the sense of, I think these kinds of textures could work really well. Let's see, you know, what it looks like. Um, but I think quite early on, the images actually impacted me. They did something to me emotionally that, that I didn't quite expect. And I think two things came together um, to lead me to formulate this in a more kind of explicit way than it had probably been floating at the back of my head for a while. But, um, and, and the first thing is that obviously 
the variety of the textures is is enormous. There's so many different types of you know leaves and branches and trees and everything that you can find. But also the fact that they're not all good looking. They're not all, you know, kind of yeah, photogenic, I suppose is the word I would use. Um, but regardless, it's sometimes delivered really striking images. Mm -hmm. And then as the studio sessions progressed, I realized that, I mean, <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous, but I, I've, I've never seen so many naked people in my life than <laughs> in the last 18 months. Um, and it, it makes you realize that a couple of things which I found really fascinating, and it's still something I'm wrapping my head around to a certain extent, and that is that, A, there really is no such thing as objectively beautiful because when, when it's all pared down, and I, I always ask my models, especially the female models, no makeup, no jewelry, because I'm trying to go for an, the most natural look that I can find. So when you strip everything down, you realize that actually everyone is beautiful. Everyone has something that you can really say, wow, this is, this is beautiful. And so it made me realize that I was, in a certain sense, I was approaching the textures and the models in a similar way where I'm just trying to look for something that's going to be striking or interesting, but not necessarily analyzing it with, especially when it comes to the models, with the kind of standard canons of beauty that we mm. carry with us because we've been exposed to images like this for so long. And, and it, it's quite fascinating. One of the things that, that, gives me really immense pleasure with this project is like a model who will tell me, I had this a few months ago, I always hate images of myself and I really love these images. And, and part of it is because they force you to look at yourself in a completely different way because it's not a realistic image of you anymore. It's a, it's a sublimated image of you in a certain way. Um, and I've noticed that some models have a real hard time getting over the image of themselves that they already have in their mind. So mm -hmm. they're not really looking at the image. They're looking at themselves. In a sense, they're still separating the texture from the, from <laughs> the model, if you see what I mean. Yeah. But most models actually, I think, and I, you know, I, this is from their own feedback, but I think most of them actually take something positive away from the experience in terms of looking at themselves differently. And, and actually <laughs> it's good that I'm going to say this on air because it kind of binds me to it. But I, it struck me a few weeks ago that I should probably uh, get a taste of my own medicine. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm, hugely fat and and not what you know i don't like my own body uh but i'm gonna try and do self-portraits using this technique just to see if i get the same 
you know, out of it than my models seem to. Um, and also just to see if much as I dislike my own body image, I can produce images that I like. Because mm. um, then if I can do it with me, I think I can do it with pretty much anybody. Mm. Yeah, I think well, we that's... We look forward to seeing that on your Instagram account. Yeah, yeah you, you <laughs> probably will. If you don't, it's because this has been a miserable thing. <laughs> <laughs> will you love yourself more as a shrub? We will find out in the future. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yes. <laughs> I think so. That's a really good. I think that's a really good point, though. I think if you, if you can take a picture of yourself that, and feel okay about it, I think it puts you in a good position. I mean, you've obviously done very well anyway with doing a good job of taking pictures of models. But I think it's a good step for anybody who maybe doesn't feel confident that make pictures of yourself first and and build up that confidence with that. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's plenty of things, and this is probably something we could talk about for hours, but there's plenty of things that are still swirling in my brain about, about the whole process and this, this relationship to the models and everything. I, I realized like a few weeks ago, I, I, uh, I shot, uh, so interestingly, I did a session with three guys and, and one girl. Um, and I've been really struggling to find male models for a reason that I'm not sure I can quite explain. Um, I mean, from the start, from the offset, I wasn't, uh, I knew I, I didn't want to focus on female models only because I want to represent the diversity of, of human nature as well. Um, and, and so, you know, I want different skin tones. I want different morphologies. I want different genders quite obviously. Um, and uh, actually, two of the models uh, do this quite often. And there was a moment that made me feel very strange because I, I got them some bottles of water. It's really hot in Hong Kong right now. And obviously, you know, you're going to stand around for an hour and a half. <laughs> I, I planned bottles of water for everyone. And I, I handed them bottles of, of water. And one of the guys said you're the most considerate photographer I've ever posed for. And I was like, just because I gave you a bottle of water, that seems a bit improbable. And he was like, you wouldn't imagine. And, and I, I just, I, I couldn't wrap my head around this. Why would you not try to get your models as comfortable as you can get them? Right. Cause that's where, and, and it, it seems that, I have at least succeeded in doing that. So one of the interesting things to me is that a lot of the models actually analyze the shoot differently from the photos. So even before they see the images, because obviously there's always a week's lag between, you know, shooting and getting the images. Um, even before seeing the images, they're already saying this was a great experience, which which I never anticipated. I always thought that the the end result was the photo not the shoot mm -hmm. but it seems like the shoot itself is also something that the models quite quite like um, and that's been an interesting epiphany mm. from my point of view as well this whole project it feels like has been um a huge amount of experimentation and learning at every single step of it both in terms of the equipment that you're using the technique that you're using to create the pictures um 
exploring and developing your work with models and how you're shooting them specifically for this technique uh, the cyanotype side it, every single step of this way you've mm -hmm. been breaking new personal development ground and it sounds as though that this is going to continue now as you move forwards into four by five um is this something that's important to you with your photography i think it is but i think that's made me realize that it was and, and actually if i'm brutally honest with myself it might not be the experimenting so much as the producing images that look like no one else's images or not no one else but you know, not everybody else's image. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I the exhibition in Hong Kong had three artists: a local uh, female photographer who was doing quite edgy nudes, uh, myself, and Michael Kenner, who uh, is better known for his uh, landscape work, but has also done some uh, nudes in Japan. I mean. For me, that was mind blowing being being exhibited next to you know a guy that that famous. Um, but what I found really interesting was that there was nothing in common two or three approaches. Um, but also, uh, the the thing that came to my mind is you know either you've got this guy's talent for minimalism. And you don't need to shoot something that looks different from what everybody else is shooting because you're so talented. Or you do what I do, and you basically design images that look like no one else's images because you don't have the talent to actually sublimate a common view, you know. And it, it's it's it'd be the same if it was a tree or a or 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 whatever. I, I don't know how to make a landscape look distinctive. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's an important part of my own appreciation of my images that they don't look like everybody else's. Mm. Mm. And there might be something very egotistic about that. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's always looking for their voice, aren't they? I mean, I think that's the thing. We've, we hear it often enough. I think Mike Gutman talked about it when he was on the show mm -hmm. um, last week. Like, we're all trying to find our way of expressing it. And I think we're all kind of hoping that we're going to find it in a way that um, when people look at the work and go, oh, that's such and such his work, I can recognize it by looking at it because it's distinctive. And that's that's what you've done with this. You found um, a way of creating work that is very personal to you. And, and, and because it's such a crafted style and techniques that you've brought together to do it, um, where do you want to take it? Is this something do you see being with you for a long time? Is there still a lot of it you want to perfect? I actually, I, I got that question asked by quite a few people uh, lately, including my wife. Um, <laughs> um, no, actually, I mean, she's been a great support throughout this because she's got a very critical eye. And when I show her the results of the sessions, sometimes she'll say, I don't like this. Mm. And it forces me to try and analyze what I like about it. And sometimes I actually end up saying, yeah, you're right. It's mm -hmm. not good. Um, and sometimes because I'm forced to think about what I like about it, I actually 
mm. figure it out. And so it's a keeper, but not just instinctively, but because I've actually been forced to think mm. about it. Uh, so that's been really interesting. Um, but it's a question I ask myself as well. To a certain extent, um, I've explored quite a bit in this area. Um, there's still a few things that I feel I haven't done justice yet. Um, so there's a, a few slightly different approaches, slightly different techniques. For example, um, I experimented with shooting on a black background as well. Um, and then the, the, it's a little bit like the technique is flipped over. Um, instead of having this, this nice kind of subject, um, you know, separation that the white background gives you, um, you basically have a mess of texture uh, from which the model emerges. Um, and it's it's quite good, but it's a lot harder to produce effective images, I find. Um, so I'd like to experiment with that a little bit more. Um, there's, there's still this idea of um, kind of representativity of the human race where um, I've... I've shot mostly white and Asian models um, because of where I'm located, essentially. Mm. Um, I'd very much like to have more uh, opportunities to shoot models with, you know, different ethnic backgrounds, different skin tones, um, different morphologies. Um, but there's a point of diminishing returns in, in the sense that I would be producing images that would look, you know, quite similar to images I've already produced. So I can see it kind of dwindling over time. Mm. But I really think objectively that it will seriously dwindle when I found the next project and uh, that will take over, you know, kind of a, <clears throat> as a natural, um, you know, progression. Um, and I have a few things kind of that I'm starting to play around with as a kind of next steps. Um, so, yeah, I, I could imagine. I, I'm, I think that I'll probably keep shooting these types of images for a long time, but certainly not as frequently as I, as I do now, not as kind of like the main um, thrust of things. There's a there's a there's one way that this could become a more recurring project, but it's quite difficult to execute. And in this age of you know being very carbon conscious, I also think it's not a very carbon conscious thing. But I think conceptually, what would work the best would be to go in a given place shoot textures that are native to that place and shoot models that are native to that place. Uh, I think that would give it a tightness in the kind of the construction mm -hmm. of the project that could justify doing it again and again in different places. But as I anticipate that we're going to travel less and less in the, in the coming years, um, that also doesn't seem a very practical way of looking at it. So I don't know, maybe that'll emerge through opportunity or it won't, but, um, it's kind of something that I have in the back of my mind. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was actually going to say how like, I really like that connection you were talking about, the limitations of the foliage in Hong Kong. Actually, that those limitations of that 
bring a real connection between the place and the models in that location mm -hmm. as well. And now that you're in France, you will automatically have a connection between the two. Whereas if you were to do this process digitally, the temptation might be to use yeah. foliage from any, anywhere and it, it's completely disconnected and, from the model. Yeah. And, and you're right, except that um, I don't think a lot of these plants are indigenous to Hong Kong in the first place. So from a botanical point of view, I'm not sure that that would make, you know, a huge amount of sense. For me personally, it works because these are textures I do associate with Hong Kong mm. because I've not seen them anywhere else. Um, but the the nature of a botanical garden is actually to show you a lot of yeah. um, a lot of plants that are not native from the place where the botanical garden is. I have tried to force myself to only shoot textures in nature, but actually that gets very dull very fast mm -hmm. because in a given place, you mostly have the same three or four plants all over the place. So it's very hard to find variety when you're when you're doing it that way. Have you considered um, Ben when you're in Hong Kong shooting? If you were to move away from um, from, from from plants and doing like build the, the buildings with the lovely lights, and then your model in in the studio as a as a double. So yeah, so I was talking about you know the kind of next steps in terms of mm. so. A lot of the ideas I have still involve some form of double exposure. Yeah. Um, I've actually experimented with buildings, um, mm. and I found it extremely hard. Out of an entire roll of shots, there was only one that I liked. Okay. Um, and the reason it's hard is that buildings are inherently um, – they're inherently parallel. So basically, whatever you decide to shoot, it's going to be parallel lines superimposed with the model. Mm. Um, and that gets boring quite fast, unless you're lucky and you get some sort of alignment between, so lucky or calculate very, very uh, mm. closely. But I'm still, I still have that on the back burner to a certain extent, yeah. um, and I think part of uh, part of the solution might be to shoot the buildings from much further away, so that what I get is much more of a visual mass, um, which yeah. would then bring it closer to a texture rather than shooting a building up close where the details are very. Uh, very visible, but that yeah. also means that the lines are very visible, and, and all that makes the the building uh, is uh, is is visible. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the photo, um, so that you could go and look at it on the website. That's but what I was kind of imagining, like your buildings from a distance, and maybe at night with the with the with the lights on, and maybe with some sort of you know you get those lovely bursts. If you have some sort of filter on to capture the, yeah. the burst, and then a then a model in the studio. Yeah, it it could it could definitely work. Um, the other thing that I'm very keen to try is <laughs> this is going to sound weird um, is parts of engines. So oh. I have this idea <laughs> for a project, 
um, that would be around automatons. Okay. Um, so the idea would be that the double exposure would kind of show the insides of an Android kind of thing, right? So, mm. but instead of being very modern with circuitry and stuff like that, it would be old engine parts with cogs and mm. levers and, and rusty bits of this and that. Um, and I, I don't know if it'll work or not, but I quite like the idea conceptually. It would definitely be less pretty and more disturbing. Um, that, that sounds like the inside of my body. So that's one, yeah, that's one idea. I have another thing that I, when I was doing the hair ones that you were mm. talking about, Graham, um, I was, I was trying to figure out a way that you could actually shoot a scene inside the hair. So that would require a lot more control of, obviously, but um, the, the kind of conceptual idea would be you're effectively picturing in the model's hair what the model's thinking about. So, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking about, I don't know, uh, climbing a mountain or buying a handbag or whatever, and, and the second scene is shot, but because of the way the double exposure works, it only appears in the hair. Now, the trick is that with texture, if you get some texture show, showing up in the skin, um, it's it's not an issue, but obviously, if you're shooting something that's actually, you know, depicts a scene, and you're actually shooting that scene, then all of the background elements are going to show up as well. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure how well that would work. One one way around that, but it would be a cheat, and I'm not sure um, I'd be comfortable with that. Is to actually shoot that second scene in the studio as well. Um, on a black background so that basically nothing else than what you want would show up in the hair. I yeah. don't know, but there's something, there's definitely, I, I guess I get the impression that double exposures haven't been used all that much um, as a creative outlet. They've been used more as a kind of fun thing to do. Mm. Um, and, and I get the impression that there's a lot that could be experimented with there. Uh, so interestingly, that led me to some really interesting photographers like Jerry Olsman and, and you know people like that. And they were doing very surreal images, but they were actually doing it in the darkroom. So they yeah. were printing multiple negative mm. superimposing parts. So, yeah, like doing I, that, I, yeah. the, the hair concept, doing a multiple exposure in the dark room is quite a simple thing to do. Yeah, exactly. yeah and, and you have a lot more control over it because, because you can then decide to expose only the bit of the image that's over the hair mm -hmm. um, rather than the whole thing. Mm. Um, but uh, could, you, could you replicate that if you're shooting four by five by putting a mask in front of the film, so you take your dark side out, but there's still a mask there to block off where the model's going to be, and then all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How how could you be precise enough to do that? I'm I'm not sure. I know. You have to laser cut them like a mask or something. Yeah, I think I'm too lazy for that. <laughs> it's interesting to me that you use the word um, cheat when you're talking about. Oh, I, I, if I was going to shoot it in the studio, but that would be like yeah. cheating. That's that's such an interesting idea to me because that feels like something that's so personal to you because to an observer, they're just going to be looking at 
the image and unless they're a real film nerd which we know there are many of and we're probably all them but um how important to you is the means of getting to the end result like is that is that integral to what your product is well so i don't know if this is really an answer to your question but i mean one of the questions i get the most is you know why don't you do this in photoshop Mm. Um, and of course the obvious answer is because I wouldn't have a clue how to, but, <laughs> um, but another more convincing answer from a creative point of view to me is because then I would get to decide about everything and mm. what's the fun in that. Mm. What, what I like here is that there's still an element of, um, you know, I'm relinquishing control of some of my final image. Um, and I've had so many happy accidents that it is kind of integral to the process. And I feel like if I'm, if I'm, if I'm shooting everything in full control, maybe some of the fun of it is just gone. But weren't mm. you saying that your plan is to move to four by five next so that you have, have no. more control over all this? Yeah, it's true. But I'd have more control, but I wouldn't have perfect control. Yeah. Um, I, I personally think there's a parallel between your subject matter and that process as well, because the human form and leaves and, and nature aren't perfect. There's an element yeah. of, of chaos in it all and randomness to to how they are represented visually and i think that then draws perfectly through your work because it's not perfect you're not trying to yeah. make it perfect yeah and you know actually one of the things that i found fascinating is and it doesn't work every time but is quite often when i'm shooting the texture i won't see like rotten leaves in the middle or stuff like that and then when i see the final image it's quite obvious and um it actually leads me to also something that I do want to explore a little bit more. And that is to move away from the pretty um, and a little bit more into the kind of clashy, something that's striking, but clashes a little bit. Um, so I had, I had a few models, um, ask me to not use images that I found very, you know, really, really amazing on the grounds that the textures didn't feel to them like it was them. The textures made them look like something that they don't recognize themselves in. So a really harsh texture on a female model, for example, there's a texture I've used very successfully with a uh, male model, uh, it's an image called Piercing Blue, um, that, I mean, he's quite hairy naturally, and the texture kind of magnifies that. It gives him a kind of primal appearance. And um, I had a fantastic image, from my point of view, with a female model with the same texture. 
and she wasn't comfortable with it. And I can understand why. In a sense, it kind of made her look hairy. Um, but when I was uh, doing uh, the artist talk at the Blue Lotus Gallery in Hong Kong um, that they organize for each artist who's exhibiting, um, someone asked me, you know, have you tried to, like, go against the grain of kind of gender... Uh, appropriate texture so more flowery for female models and more kind of harsh looking for male models and i've done a bit of it accidentally but not deliberately and that is something that i'd like to explore a bit more um but i realized that i need to have a very different conversation with my models because then i can't just be saying you know if you're uncomfortable with the image, then we don't use it because the goal is in part to reach something that's a little less comfortable. Mm. Um, and but but yeah, I, I I totally recognize what you're saying there, John, as as part of my motivation for this. Um, definitely, definitely. And then uh, just to finish on like future projects. There's also a lot I want to experiment on with Cyanotype. I mean, one of the really fun things about Cyanotype, and I, I love darkroom printing, so this is in no way, uh, you know, a, a comparison. Uh, but darkroom printing requires a lot of discipline. Uh, and it seems to me that experimenting, like, you know, really wild experimentation in the darkroom is a much bigger hurdle than it is with Cyanotype. Uh, because the cyanotypes produce so fast and and so cheaply that you know you can really play around with it and not worry too much about you know what it's costing you or or, or even whether it's going to deliver anything uh, interesting. Um, so there's a lot of things that I want to try with that, but there's one in particular uh, which would not be cheap. Actually, it would probably be very expensive. But um, I I want to try and do life-size cyanotype prints of a model um like maybe you know kind of really intricate costume or dress something that's quite striking um and then actually print it at the size of the model um mm. which has a lot of technical hurdles <laughs> but the the cyanotype blue is so striking that i think it could be really really amazing um, keeping in mind that, you know, from a fine art or, or aspiring fine art photographer point of view, portraits don't sell anyway. Um, so it would definitely not be a, a, a very lucrative uh, road. But um, it's, it's definitely something that I want to I want to play around with. That would be awesome. I think it's great that you're that it's very mindful of you to be looking to to go to different places, take the stuff that you've learned and the stuff that you've enjoyed from um, the photosynthesis, but move on and beyond that and to do different stuff. Because I would imagine it's um, tempting to go, oh, I found something that's clicked with people that people like. I'll just keep doing this because people like it. And I think I'd be quite fearful to go, okay, I'm going to move on to something else now. Because what if they? What if people don't like that? What if it doesn't click? But I think it's great that you're like, no, nah, I'm just gonna fall onwards and upwards. Well, if I'm honest, if I was if I was trying to make a living out of this, uh, probably my 
approaches would be very, very different. Mm. But um, I'm 49. I'm, it's quite clear to me that, you know, this will most likely not be much more than pocket money going forward. Um, so, you know, if it could pay for the equipment, that would be a massive step <laughs> already. Um, so, you know, I might as well have fun with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times that you had the gallery exhibition. There was it the Blue Lotus Gallery in Hong Kong. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you got this um, great short video um, made up at the time. I think there's a link on your Instagram page. Um, was this something that was done by the gallery or was this something that you organized yourself? No. Um, so it has a connection to the gallery. Um, and and I, I mean, I'm really, really uh, thankful to uh, Sarah and Christina who uh, respectively own and, and, and run the gallery. Um, basically what happened was they, I, I, they ran a, a history of photography course last summer, um, which I attended uh, uh, it was uh, it was done by a New Zealand uh, photographer called David Boyce. Uh, mm. Really interesting, fascinating stuff. Mm. Um, that got me on their lists, and then they organized uh, and they still do every month a kind of artist sharing session where people come and present their their projects and the guests discuss, etc. So sometime in October last year. I showed this work. It was the early cyanotypes and then the black and white prints. And the feedback I got was really, you know, like heartening. It was, you know, you, you, I got out of there really pumped up. Um, and I think it, it, you know, it probably uh, planted a seed in, in Sarah and Christina's mind that, that this was maybe worth exploring. Um, and then sometime in, in January, they told me that they were, organizing um, an exhibition under the kind of title nude studies and that they wanted my work to be featured so it happened really really quickly um, and uh, at one of these artist sharing sessions I met uh, Michele who is a videographer uh, but he also shoots film and uh, so he and I got to talking about doing a video to try and highlight the process um, and um, and so we did. I mean, I say we, but I didn't do very much. It was mostly his work, and it was just fantastic um, what he managed to do. And I, yeah, I, I, I've seen it, you know, a few dozen times, and I still love watching that video. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's awesome. And we'll make sure there's a, a link in the show notes to that and to your Instagram well, page and your website. I mean, your website's more up to date than most people's websites, Ben. I think you do yourself so short on that one. Well, it's just, it's just not very ergonomically, you know, practical. But, um, but uh, Have you looked into, I suppose, uh, this is a stupid question because you, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, have only been back in France for a matter of days at this point. <laughs> Will you look to see if there's any interest in exhibiting the work elsewhere, back home or, or other places in the future? Yeah, so actually I am meeting with a gallery in Paris on Friday. Um, and I'm probably wherever I go this summer, I'm probably going to be on the lookout for, mm. um, opportunities and, and yeah, I think that's definitely the net, the next step for me is, is finding a few galleries, um, that are interested in the work and willing to, willing to show it. Um, obviously, uh, practicalities, you know, when you're doing 
when you're doing archival digital prints of black and white images, it's quite easy to do that remotely. With cyanotypes, it's a little bit more complex because you actually have to print them and send them over. But none of that is uh, unsurmountable. And uh, and I yeah, I would love for the work to be you know viewed by more pe people visible elsewhere. It, it's it's really weird because my Instagram has grown quite fast in the last few months, but you know, it's still about 1,500 people, um, which in the grand scheme of things is really not a lot of people. Um, so uh, it, it clearly cannot be your only way to project the work out there. Mm. You yeah. To, you need to, and, and the other thing is, particularly with the cyanotypes, uh, because you're printing on watercolor paper, it's a very textured medium. Mm. Uh, when you see the image, you know, like, face-to-face, -face, so to speak, it just has an entirely different feel from, from what you can see on a screen. Um, so, yeah, I have a few leads. Uh, uh, there's a, a guy in Denmark who told me that he would ask around. There's a, a lady in the Netherlands who gave me a few addresses. I need to find the time also to contact these people. And um, the, one of the interesting things I find is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting into this stage quite late in life um, with you know, 30 years of business experience behind me. So um, interestingly enough, the part that doesn't particularly intimidate me is contacting people and saying, you know, this is what I do. Are you interested? Um, whereas I imagine a young photographer would probably be terrified at the idea of, of actually pushing doors <laughs> and, and, and trying to get his work seen. Um, but, you know, obviously every little bit helps. So if, if any UK galleries, I'm, I'm going to assume mostly UK, but maybe that's wrong as well. But, you know, if any galleries are watching this and are interested, um, I would love to be in touch or that's, for them to be in touch. Yeah, well, it would be awesome to see the work getting out to other places. I certainly hope it comes close enough for us to be able to see it in this country. That would be pretty great. That would be pretty great because like I said, I think the whole thing is... I think it's a fascinating project from start to finish and there's just so many elements of it which I delight in. Um, it's great. It's really nice. And I'm really excited to see where you go with it, uh, taking it forwards from here, what comes next. I think that's even more intriguing. Um, so remind us again, where do you want people to go to see your work and find a link to the video and stuff? Yeah, so I think the, the easiest is the Instagram at Ben Felton. Um, and then next is the website, uh, benoitfelton.com, uh, B-E-N-O-I-T-F-E-L-T-N.com. Awesome. And I know you've done some writing in the past, Ben, for places like 35MC. Have you um, at any point done any writing about your process for the double exposures? Is that something yeah. that's out there? Where would so, people go to find that? So there's two articles on 35MMC about this. Uh, I think if you search textured double exposures, you will find them. Um, and there's also an article on the Ilford blog, um, also highlighting the, the process, maybe with a little bit less detail. Um, and I'm probably due a couple more articles on 35MMC in the not-too-distant future, uh, simply because you know my own approach to it has evolved since then. And I was only you know kind of uh, dipping my toe in the cyanotype bath uh, at the point where I wrote those early articles, and now I've I've learned a lot from mm. that side of things as well. Awesome. Um, well, so, I will try and track down the links to those and stick them in the oh, show I'll notes. Send them to you. Don't worry. That would yeah. be great. Oh my god, that'd be so much easier. Because <laughs> guess what? I'm really bad at doing show notes. Oh, phew. <laughs> um, 
thank you so much for joining us tonight, Ben. It's been great hearing all about this. It really has. Um, John and Claire, is there anything you guys need to let our listeners know about this week? I don't think so. <laughs> John had some, some gear questions. We're going to have to do another one of those. I think we'll have to do another one of these because we've been going for an hour and a half now. So we'll probably have to, so we'll have to, share, we'll have to save the gear chat to another evening, Ben. Um, but we'll yep. definitely have it. We, we will definitely have it. Because um, we had better get out of here now. Um, I, yeah, I don't think there's any parish notices to go other than to say don't forget that we are now in the midst of a cheap shots challenge um let's <laughs> oh, what forget. was the theme i got really confused listening to that <laughs> the theme is unwind john unwind as as we as the podcast is recorded tonight um we've just seen the news that in the uk apparently all the rules are off now do what you like we're entering the purge and the keto period of the covid response let's <laughs> just do what you like um so uh, now that all of those restrictions are being lifted we can all unwind and relax in however that wants to be done by you so um, hopefully we'll see some pictures from that start to come in soon. I really need to sort out a camera for that. Um, I'll get around to that soon. Um, and, uh, well, we'll speak to you next week, Claire, because you're not going off to Barcelona anytime soon. That'll be after that. So lovely. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm rambling even more incoherently than usual now. So it's definitely a sign that it's time to get <laughs> out of here. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll play you out, as always, with Rachel's fabulous band, Rioja or Roja, whichever one you <laughs> want to go for. <laughs> I personally like Rioja best, um, which you can find on Bandcamp, Amazon, Spotify, all the best places where music can be found and we will be back with you next week until then thank you very much for listening and goodbye goodbye bye thank you bye.